Hey y'all, welcome to the Jefferson College Podcast. We're so glad y'all are here listening with us. We are the college ministry at Jefferson Baptist Church, and each week we'll post a sermon from our college worship service. Here's this week's sermon. How's it going, guys? Oh, goodness. Oh, man, that bad, huh? Are we like, well, we got three, four weeks left? Okay, sorry. Um, we got like three months left. Um, I'm sorry, uh, if y'all didn't know that year's only a few le- weeks left. I only know because I have like two more Minor Prophets, and that's sad to me. I mean, it really is. Like, it's been so fun to go through the Minor Prophets. Um, I've learned a ton. I hope you've learned at least a little. And like, man, it has just been so good to see God's goodness through it all. Um, like, even though, like, we think of the Minor Prophets as these, like, very doom and gloom uh, people, which they, they are, right? Like, I mean, there's a lot that they need to be doom and gloom about. But man, God is so good amidst it all. And as we look into another minor prophet today, we're going to learn the same thing. Uh, It's a little different, um, but we are going to learn that people are sinful and that God is good and forgiving. Um, But man, that is so good to hear over and over and over again, because it is just the truest thing about him. So today we're going to be looking at the prophet Micah. All right? Y'all like Micah? Okay, okay. Somebody name one verse from Micah. Oh, 719. Okay. That's good. 4-4. Four, four. What's it say? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fig tree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fig tree. Fig tree. 6-8, anybody? Come on. Yeah, that's the one. Right? Like, if you know any verse from Micah, it's Micah 6-8. Um which we will get to, and I'll read it here in a second. Um, but it's basically, <laughs> except your cane, uh, like he's got the fig tree reference down. Um, but man, this is such a good passage. As we look at the, the, I know I say that all the time, but it's just the Bible, so it's all good, right? Um, but as we look at Micah, the whole book, right? Like we're not going to be able to cover the whole book. Um, that would be a series in and of itself. But as we cover Micah today, um, I just want to kind of point out a few key things um, that is just kind of repetitive throughout the book. Um, so what happens in Micah is a lot more hope than other prophets. Um, so like there's, there's a lot of judgment, but he interlaces hope within it all, right? Like you get to this judgment and you're like, man, this is really, really bad. Uh, and then he's like, but here's some hope. He goes, all right, they're going to die. Like everything's going to be ruined. And he said, but here's some hope. And so that's just kind of the pattern as Micah writes. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at this last pattern of judgment and then hope. We're actually going to be looking at Micah 719 a little bit too, so I'm, I'm glad you're here, Madeline. <laughs> Man, it's going to be so good though, and I am so excited that you are here. Um, I know things are busy, things are crazy at the end, as we end the semester, um, so thank you for being here. Um, I think it will be beneficial for you, and as we study God's Word, man, I just hope you can ne- focus in for the next 30 minutes, all right? Y'all ready? Okay, one person. Let's do this. All right, Micah 6, 1 through 8. Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. So as we read these verses, um, I just want to give y'all kind of like what's happening here. So basically the Lord is indicting, it's a big word, he's basically blaming the people of Israel for not holding up to their covenant promise. Um, So this is kind of like a covenant lawsuit. Um, Like you can go law and order all out on this, right? Like this is God saying the people did not withhold their end of their agreement. And the people come back and like try to fight for themselves. They do a very bad job. Um, And then we have the, the, the very big one, right? Verse 8 of what the Lord requires of his people. So as we read through 6, um, we're not going to read all the way through, but as we read through these 8 verses, 
Let's just realize that is kind of the mindset we're looking at. That's what we're looking at is this lawsuit case. So verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So verse 3, we have the Lord speaking through Micah. He says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to, to Gilgal. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And here's the people's response. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God? On high, Shall I come before him with, with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the prophet responds, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and study it and learn from it. Lord, we just pray during these next few minutes, Lord, that you would just speak to us, that you would remove any distractions we might have, whether that be school, whether it be relationships, whether it just be life in general. Lord, we just pray that we can focus in on what you have for us during these next few minutes. Lord, we ask that you speak to us. Lord, we ask that you just continue to work in our lives and transform us into your likeness. Lord, we love you so much. We're so grateful for who you are and how you love us. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So as we go through this verse, and we're going to look a little bit in the next chapter as well, we're going to look at three, well, four things, but we're going to look at three uh, characteristics of God. So as we go through this, this passage, we're going to see multiple characteristics of God come up. And then we're also going to look at man, which is a bad place to be most of the time. So we're going to look at what man does, and we're also going to look at how God responds. So the first thing we see is that God is a faithful redeemer. God is a faithful redeemer. We see this in verse 3 through 5. So this is the beginning of the trial, right? The Lord is, is asking the people, he says, okay, what have I done wrong? How have I wearied you? Like, please answer me. I want to know what I've done wrong wrong? The answer is obviously nothing, right? He's obviously done everything he's supposed to do because it's God and it's, who, it's his character. So I have a question for y'all real quick. Does anybody in here like group projects? Two, I, three, uh, I shouldn't say this. Uh, I know why they like them, right? Uh, I'm just kidding, Bailey. And that's not you. It was the other two, though. Uh, <laughs> But hey, 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 you know it's true. You know it's true. I'm not going to bring it up, but you know it's true. Anyways, group projects. <laughs> group projects, right? We all hate them because of what? Freeloaders. I like it. People don't do their part, right? Like, you get into the group project. Okay, let's go to a group project. Just me and one other person right now, okay? We get in this group project, and we say, okay, here's what we have to do, Right? This is the project that we have to complete in this allotted time. So I'm going to do this part. You hear me? I'm going to do this part, 
and then you're going to do this part, right? That's how it works. And like, in theory, group projects are great because you only have to do half the work. Mm. <laughs> but what happens is you do your part, maybe. I don't know, some of you. I, was, I just did it late, but, uh, which y'all probably hate me too. Um, but you do your part, and the other person doesn't. You're like, whoa, 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 wait. I thought we agreed upon what we were going to do, right? Like, I was going to do this section. Like, it's even harder than what you had to do. You just had to put the PowerPoint together. I did all the research, right? And, like, they didn't even put the PowerPoint together, and I gave them basically everything they needed. We get frustrated, right? We're like, I did everything that I was supposed to do. Why didn't you? As I read this passage, that's, like, what goes into my head. I know that's not the attitude God has, but, like, that's what goes into my head. Right? He said, I agreed to love you, to redeem you, to carry you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And man, I did it. Why are you wearied? Why are you tired? Why are you not withholding your end of the deal? And man, the greatest thing about it though, God knew that they weren't going to withhold their end of the deal from the beginning. And yet he faithfully redeemed them anyways. So he asks the questions, right? He asks these rhetorical questions of like, what did I do wrong? And then he gives them three examples. He goes through and say, didn't I take you out of Egypt? Right? I brought you out of Egypt where you were in slavery, and I brought you into freedom. I redeemed you. I brought you into the wilderness. I opened a sea for you and brought you out. I appointed Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all of these great leaders, to lead you out of there. In the wilderness, when you were there, I was there with you. I was leading you there. He, he gives this example of Balak and Balaam, right? I probably said Balak's name wrong, but just stick with me. Y'all know this story? Balaam, donkey, remember? Anybody? Right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all got the donkey part of it. Um, but, like, so this story... It's a really important one because they're in the wilderness. They're going, they're not over in the Jordan yet, but they're in the wilderness still. And they're going to basically attack a nation. And this King Balak, he says, hey, I'm going to get this, this guy. He's a prophet. We don't exactly know what that means um, because it doesn't seem like he's a prophet of Yahweh, but sort of. It's weird. But anyways, he gets Balaam and he says, go and curse the Israelites so I can defeat them. Go and curse the Israelites so I can defeat them. And Balaam's like, I can't do that. Like, the Lord won't let me. Uh, then we have the story of the donkey, right? Like, the angel's like, you ain't going to curse them. Uh, and all of that stuff, right? All of that to say, the reason it's brought up here is because God was willing to bless them, not curse them, even when they were disobedient. And then he gives a third example, right? He says, from, from Shittim to Gilgal, Right? So if you don't know anything about Israelite history, which is fine, uh, this is very minute details along the way. But in Shittim, they broke their covenant. They said, we're not going into the promised land. We don't trust that God can get us there. This was the two, two, two spies that said, yeah, we can. And the other ten were like, no, we can't. Right? Y'all remember that story? And then they end up in the wilderness for 40 more years. Because they broke the covenant. And they wander around on this side of the Jordan for 40 years. And then Gilgal, which is on the other side of the Jordan, that's where the covenant is renewed. 
That's in the book of Joshua. I actually read it this morning. But it's in the book of Joshua. Where they get to, they, they go through Jericho already, and they set up at Gilgal. They got Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Sorry, I blanked for a second. They have these two mountains, and they set up this covenant once again. Joshua reads the law to them once again in its entirety. And they are entered back into the covenant which they broke. God delivered them into this new covenant. And as he gets to this hearing, he's saying, man, what more can I do for you? You've broken your covenant before, and I replaced it. You've been unfaithful to me before, and I've been faithful to you. And he is always a faithful redeemer. And we need to understand that as we go through the rest of this passage and all throughout the prophets, that God starts and ends with faithfulness. He starts and ends with redemption. While it doesn't always look like it, he is always a faithful redeemer. So as we go on into the text a little bit further, we see in verse 6 this reply from the people. Man, it's a bad reply. Um, And this is kind of the part of us that tells us what man does. Because man turns to false religion. In the midst of faithfulness of our God, we always tend to turn to false religion. Let's read that verse again. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? So we start here and it's like calves a year old. This is like what they say in the law. Like, bring these before God, and they will, they will cover up your sins, right? He says, and he continues on. He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? So we amp up, right? Like, we went from one calf a year old to a thousand rams. It's a pretty big escalation. And then he goes, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? I don't know, y'all, that sounds like a lot of oil, right? He, he, this, this man's reply is, what more does God want? I'm giving my sacrifices. I'm paying my dues. What more does God want? And then he goes on to a dark part, right? He goes on to the most valuable thing in his life. He says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So we see this escalation, and it just turns to just absurdity real quick. Because this was never Israelite practice. The people have long forgotten what Israelite practice is. They think this is part of it because this is only Canaanite rituals. This is only Canaanite worship. And they have turned and said, does God want my firstborn? Of course not. Because this is just so absurd. This is so unscriptural. These people have fallen so far away from true relationship with God that they are intertwining their mixed ideas between Canaan's idols and their one true God. But the sad part about it is, is we always tend to go that way. We tend to say, because the issue isn't that they were making sacrifices. The issue is that they were viewing sacrifices as a ticket into God's favor. They're saying, okay, what's the entry fee? How much can I pay? How much do I owe you, God? I'll pay it. I'm going to continue to live how I'm going to live, but like I'll pay your price. In our modern terms, all this is saying is like, how much should I go to church? How many scriptures do you want me to memorize? How, much, how many times, how many hours do you want me to spend in prayer? 
Because God, I'll pay it. My life won't change, but I'll pay the due. And man, this is just so misconstrued. Because God isn't ever worried about the sacrifices. He's always worried about the person that's making the sacrifices. He's always in love with the person making the sacrifices. And all he wants is a relationship with them. He doesn't want their sacrifices. He wants their hearts. Guys, we have to understand this because this seems ridiculous to us. But this is exactly what we do. We make our relationship with God a checklist. We say, quiet time this morning. Prayed. Went to church on Wednesday. Instead of truly seeking and walking with God. Because that is the only way. It is the only way that we're going to have a proper relationship with him. It's not through doing things. It's through knowing someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ. If we don't know Jesus, if we don't know God, our works are going to mean nothing. They're like filthy rags. Our righteousness is like filthy rags to our God unless we know Jesus. Because he doesn't want just actions. He wants a life transformed into the likeness of his son. The third thing that we see in this passage is that God desires a life-transforming relationship. A life-transforming relationship. So, I'm going to tell you the story. I was, it's not a true story, but just stick with me. So I was getting coffee with a guy one time, right? And he looked at me, and I already looked at him. I said, hey, man, how's your week been? Just a normal conversation. He's like, honestly, it's been pretty rough. I was like, oh, really, man? What happened? He looked at me. He said, I was driving down the interstate the other day, flat tire. I was like, dang, that's rough, right? Like, that's a bad day. To, that's a bad place to be. He said he was out. He was changing the tire, um, and he said, Man, the car slipped off the jack right onto my arm. I was like, whoo, that's a bad place to be. It is a bad week, right? And he said, the worst part about this, as I was trying to get my arm from out underneath my car, I fell into the road and got hit by a semi-truck. I said, what? Wait, (laughs) wait, you told me you got hit by a semi-truck this week and you're sitting in front of me at this coffee shop, right? Something doesn't add up there, right? Because if you get hit by a semi-truck, your life changes forever if you're still alive, right? Like, you're in a hospital bed. You're not sitting in front of me. But so often, our relationship with God looks like that conversation. We say, man, the Lord hit me like a semi-truck this week, and then we continue to do exactly what we've always done. Because the truth is, when we enter into a relationship with God, our lives are completely altered. Completely. Our wants, our desires change. Our actions change. Our life changes. Because that's what God wants from us. He doesn't want someone who's just saying that the Lord is speaking to them. He wants someone that's living out his word. And living out his purpose. Let's read verse 8 real quick. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So this is the verse that most of us have probably heard of at some point in our lives. We've probably seen it at Hobby Lobby, something like that, right? Like we've seen this verse. 
But what this verse is, it's talking to his people first off. So if you don't have a relationship with him, this verse is not talking to you because he wants to have the relationship first. But he wants people that, that do justice. He wants people that act fairly with each other, that treat the poor right, that keep their word. He wants people that are truly living changed lives. He wants people that are loving kindness or loving mercy, depending on your translation. This means he wants people that love to love people, that care about people, that love them, that, that are merciful, that are kind, that are gracious. Guys, because if we're not loving people, we see this all throughout the New Testament, then I don't know if we're a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Because in John 13, 33, he says, I will know, they will know you if, excuse me, they will know if you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. If they don't know your love, then how are we claiming Jesus? Because that's who he is. The third thing in this passage he calls us to do is to, to walk humbly with your God. And man, that is the most beautiful phrase and it is so good because what he's saying, he's saying, I don't want you just to have changed lives. I don't want you just to have changed talks, changed communications. I want you to know me. I want you to walk beside me. Because what the people of Israel has so long forgotten is that they thought sacrifices were enough, but they did not care who they were sacrificing to. They did not care what they were bringing these thousands of rams to. Because in their hearts, all that they were doing was paying a price and then they were going on and sinning more. That is not what God wants. God wants a relationship with us. He wants us to walk humbly hand in hand with him. Because if we're not walking with him, we're walking alone. And we, in and of ourselves, are never gonna be good enough. We, in and of ourselves, our sacrifices will never be good enough unless we know the person who we walk beside. Walking humbly with our God means to faithfully walk next to him. It means to live in humility and say, no, it's not me that's good, it's God who is good. It means I'm gonna follow you where you lead no matter where it might be. I'm gonna take steps in faith even if they're difficult. Even if they don't make sense to me, I'm going to walk humbly with my Lord because I know he knows more than I do. Walking humbly with our God means God lead me and I will follow in everything I do. The issue with the Israelites and the issue with us today most of the time is that we want to do the right things but never pay the cost. Never, excuse me, pay the price. We want to just go to church but live our lives however we want to live them. We want to worship God. We want to read our Bibles, but we do not want to give up the sin that is holding on to us. And if we're walking in humility with our God, he can't walk next to sin. But what's great about him is that he is forgiving. He is willing to give you, show you mercy and grace when you do not deserve it. So, so far we've seen that, man, God is good, right? Like, he is a faithful redeemer to his people. The second thing we saw was that man 
they, they are not so good, right? They turn to false religion. They turn to things that they think would please God instead of actually trying to please them with their lives. And the third thing we see is that God wants our hearts, right? He desires a, tr- a life-transforming relationship. He doesn't just want your, your speak. He doesn't want you just to claim Christianity. He wants who you are because he wants to walk hand-in-hand with you. And as we continue through this passage, we're going to uh, summarize some stuff real quick because we just don't have time to read the next two chapters, just honestly. So as we continue in verses 9 through 12, right, um, this is God. He's returning. Um, to his indictment of the people, saying, like, these are some of the sins that you're participating in um, that are not good, right? This is why judgment is coming beyond, I can't speak tonight, I'm sorry, is coming upon you, there's the word, because you're sinning, you're injustice, you're violent, right? You're, You're not treating others, you're not loving others. You have wicked scales, right? Like, you are just being unjust, you're robbing people, of their goods. You're treating the poor poorly. So because of this, the Lord judges the Israelites. He sends them. He claims them guilty. They deserve judgment. In verses 13 through 16, we see God give this, this curse from the covenant. This, this is what you deserve because you have broken the covenant. So they are going to uh, face pestilence. They're going to face issues. They're going to take blows. Um, they're going to be overcome, Right? One thing I didn't mention earlier that's important is that Micah is writing to the northern kingdom like we've been writing to the past three weeks, but he's also writing to the southern kingdom. He's telling them both that there is going to be destruction because you are not following God faithfully. So he has come upon them and he said, Babylon's going to take the southern kingdom, Assyria's going to take the northern kingdom. And if we're, we're really close to this Assyrian takeover, because um, as Micah writes, he writes about 730 B.C., um, so this, if you know anything about the history and the destruction of northern kingdom of Israel, that happened in 722. So like we're right there. Um, we are right in the midst of it. And he's saying there is going to be judgment and you're seeing it today, which brings us into chapter 7. This judgment is happening in social upheaval in the nation. You can't even trust your family members anymore. Go and hide is what he says. Because you can't trust the people that you're around because there is no justice in the land anymore. There is no one that is holy. There is no one that is righteous. Everyone is unrighteous. Everyone is following other gods. And in verse 7, we see this glimmer of hope um, by Micah. I'll read that. He says, but as for me, this is amidst all the social upheaval that's going on around him. He says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He realizes that his only hope is in God alone. It is not in the people that he's around. It's not in the society that he's in, but his salvation comes from God. And as we go on into the text a little bit further, we see verses 8 through 12, or 13. We see this continual idea of the people of Israel turning back. They're saying, okay, Maybe there is hope in God. Maybe there is hope in this God that's forgiving. We thought it was only judgment, but maybe there is hope. Which leads us into verse 14, and we're going to read from there. He says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwells alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. 
as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn and dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. And you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. In these verses, we see God restoring his people. It is a beautiful passage of showing who God is. And the fourth and final thing we see about God here is that God is forgiving, he's compassionate, and he is faithful. That's more than one thing, but it is what it is. That's what the passage says. As the book concludes... Again, we've seen Micah judge the people, condemn them. Assyria is going to come and get them. Babylon's going to come and get Judah. And he's saying there is still hope because our God is a God who forgives. Our God is a God who restores. Our God is a compassionate and faithful God. He desires, right? He delights in steadfast love. He doesn't delight in his anger. He delights in steadfast love, and he desires for his people to be forgiven. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5, I believe, is this is, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is God's desire for us. He desires us all to be saved and to know who Jesus is. He sent his son for us. Just like he's going to restore the people of of Israel, he restoring us through his son. Because that was the ultimate restoration. It's sending his son to die for us in order that we might have life and life eternal. Because he paid the price. He was the sacrifice, right? That was the price to enter into God's presence. It wasn't all the thousands of rams. It was the one true son of God who came to die. That was the ultimate sacrifice so that we didn't have to continue to pay for God's favor. Instead, we just place our faith in him. Put our belief in him and that's it. Because he has done the work. He has paid the price. And he is a God who forgives. What's so beautiful about this passage, and I understand why it's Madeline's favorite verse, is because he says that, man, he is a God who forgives iniquities. He is a God who stomps on iniquities. He casts out all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He said, once you enter into a relationship with you, I recognize that you're a sinner, but I'm going to throw them into the depths of the ocean because I know that Jesus paid for you. And instead of seeing our sinfulness, he sees God and Christ's holiness within us. 
And man, what a good message that we can have. And what a blessing we have to have a God that is forgiving and compassionate and faithful to us. Because he is compassionate. He delights in steadfast love. And guys, he will show faithfulness to his word. As we wrap up this passage, he goes to verse 20, right? He says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. And you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This seems a little strange um, because like we're not talking to Abraham here. We're not talking to Jacob. But what this prophet is saying and how he wraps up his book is saying, you promised to Abraham that he was going to be a blessing to all the nations. You promised to Abraham that his name was going to be named great. His name was going to be known. And I know, God, that you are faithful to keep your word. You are faithful to keep your word to us. And he did. That story I just said about this Jesus guy, he is the one who is the greatest blessing of all time, and it came through the line of Abraham. It came through David, their king. He is the one who succeeded in bringing faithfulness back and blessing the nations forever. So the question is, is have you placed our, your faith in this God? In this God who forgives? In this God who, who loves us and is compassionate to us? Who's faithful to us even in our unfaithfulness? And if you have, do you turn to God amidst your sin? Because he is a God who forgives. The issue is that people never turn to God. They sinned and just said, I'm going to offer a sacrifice and move on. But what God wanted from them was to repent and turn to him because he will forgive them. He will cast their sins into the depths of the sea, but they needed to turn to him and repent. So do you do that? Or in sin, do you run away from God? Because what the prophet is trying to help us understand is that he is going to be faithful to forgive us. All we have to do is go to him. He knows his end of the bargain and he is going to keep it. Because he loves us and he cares for us. So guys, as we conclude um, this book, it's a really good book. I encourage you to go read it. Um, there's some weird language in there at times, but just stick with it. It is so good to be reminded of who God is. Because I think we can read scripture and we forget who the story is all about. We can forget that it's not about us, but it's about God, who is compassionate, who's a faithful redeemer to his people, who desires a transformed life out of us. He doesn't just want our sacrifices. He wants a relationship with us. And he is forgiving. And he is compassionate. And he is faithful to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for who you are and how you continue to love us every single day. Lord, we pray right now that if, if anyone in this room has not given their life to you, Lord, we pray that they would do that in this moment. We pray that you would just continue to transform their lives. And Lord, we pray for those that have given their life over to you. Lord, that they wouldn't just offer things to you. That they wouldn't just do things for you. But Lord, that they would walk with you. Lord, that they would do justice. That they would love kindness and they would walk humbly with you, God. 
Lord, we pray that our lives would be transformed into your image. We pray that we please you with our lives and with our hearts. And Lord, we pray that during this time of reflection that we would deal with you appropriately. Lord, we love you. And it's your son's name I pray. Amen. So guys, like every week, we have three questions um, that we're just going to reflect on. Uh, these questions aren't anything special. Um, most of the time it's already seen in the passage. Um, but I want these questions to just put some feet to the message we just heard. So that we aren't just leaving here hearing something and walking away from it but that we actually respond to what God has for us. So this first question is, have you turned to false religion over a relationship with God? Have you turned to a list of do's and don'ts, or do you truly know and walk with God? Secondly, is your life growing in Christ-likeness? Because we see that he wants our life to be transformed into his image. He doesn't just want us to say the right things or be at the right places. And lastly, do you turn to our forgiving God in sin or away from him? This one's huge. And this is the perfect time to turn to God and pray through your sin because he is a God that's compassionate and will forgive us. So let's just take these next few moments and pray. They're gonna play for a little bit, just some music. After that, if you wanna stand up and sing along with them for this last song, you can. If you wanna stay seated and just deal with God, you can do that as well.